So the reading is from Esther chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 4, and it can be found in the Red Church Bibles on page 501. So let's have open ears, open minds, and open hearts as we hear God's word. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citizen of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. For all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink without restriction, for the king instructed all the wine servant stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Bizta, Harbona, Bigta, Abagta, Zetha, and Karkas, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, He spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, Karshina, Shetar, Admata, Tarshish, Meris, Marsina, and Memukan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memukan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong 
not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Merican proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household, using his native tongue. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti, and what she had done, and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Thank you. Well, let's keep uh, Esther open in front of us. Uh, that's what we're going to be looking at together now. But I'm going to pray. Father God, we want to thank you for your words, and we pray that you'd help us to hear it and understand it. Pray, uh, as Jill said before, that we would have open ears and open minds and open hearts to receive what it is that you want to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've had the experience of, of driving in a foreign country. Uh, it can be quite unnerving at times. Everything can be happening all at once. Everything's all happening from every possible angle. And it seems like sort of the worst people are finding it easy to get ahead and go where they want to go, while sensible people, responsible people get left behind. And if there are any laws, nobody seems to be keeping these laws and if somebody's supposed to be in charge where on earth are they it can be just absolute chaos uh, and i think life can feel like that sometimes like we're sort of 
just there in the middle of a, of a street with cars coming at us from every angle. And you think, what is going on? Everything's spiralling out of control. I'm overloaded with disasters and potential disasters, left, right, in the rearview mirror. I don't know what lane I'm supposed to be in, let alone which lane I am actually in. And if anyone's in charge of this mess, where is he? Life can just feel like chaos. Where is God in all of that? I wonder if you've asked that question sometimes. Where is God in all of this? And perhaps even then felt bad about it, as if you're not really supposed to ask that kind of question. Well, we are allowed to ask that kind of question. We're encouraged to ask that kind of question. And while there aren't easy answers, there are answers. And in the Bible, not just answers, but we're given stories. We're given stories like Esther, which capture so much of the struggle of living in a world like that, a messed up world where it seems like it's absolute chaos. Stories like this, they, they don't give us dictionary definitions of what we're supposed to do, but they give us real situations we can grab onto where we can see that God has been at work, even through very, very dark times. So stories like Esther really help us. And so I think it's quite strange that the story is relatively unknown. I've spoken to various people that not really heard a sermon series on Esther. Speaking to some people saying, I don't know if I've actually read it all the way through. Uh, Until the the year 700, not one Christian commentary was written on the book. It's it's always been somewhat neglected. Even now, the best commentary, what I think is the best commentary on Esther, says that Esther is not a book that you should preach through chapter by chapter. So, haha, that sounds like a challenge to me, doesn't it? But Esther is honestly, it is one of my favourite books of the Bible. I'm absolutely persuaded that this little story is perfect for such a time as this, for such people as us, and give us real help, give us real comfort in the middle of a chaotic situation. So are you sitting comfortably? Well, tough. I will begin. I'm sure you are sitting comfortably on the lovely new chairs. Our story opens with the impressive king. The impressive king. It all started, chapter 1, verse 1, during the time of Xerxes. Now, I mean, the name itself sounds amazing, doesn't it? Xerxes. You might have heard about him. He was the most powerful king the world had ever known. He was the leader of the mighty Persian Empire. If you see uh, on the, the map on the screen how his territory spanned from modern-day Pakistan in the east to Turkey in the west, Sudan in the south. It was absolutely massive. Uh, if you look at it on a world map, it's all of that. The majority of people in the world at that time lived with him as their ruler. Now, that is an impressive king, isn't it? He certainly thought that he was pretty impressive. Uh, archaeologists found this inscription on a pillar in Susa saying this, I am Xerxes, the great king, king of kings, king of all countries, king of the worlds. This is not a man with a, a confidence problem, is it? Verse 2 tells us he reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Susa was one of the four capital cities, because obviously you need four of them. You need to have a spare in case one breaks down or something, I'm not sure. This is the winter capital, um, and uh, that's where he generally was. And his royal throne that he was there, that was a big statement. When Persia used to go to war, Xerxes would be carried into battle on his throne. 
by his 10,000 bodyguards called the Immortals. What an amazing group that is. Just everything about him is terrifying and powerful. There was probably a war that was behind this feast that he was throwing. He wasn't content with the size of his empire. He wanted to get bigger, better. He wanted to conquer Greece as well. So in 483 BC, Xerxes held a great war council. He, he put a feast on for all of his officials and servants and soldiers and governors to try and win their cooperation. He put on the party to end all parties. So we read this in verse 4. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. That is six months just imagine, uh, think back to a barbecue you had in the summer. And I imagine that exact same party is still going on now in January. <laughs> that is a feast, isn't it? And, and then to top it all, at the end of this six-month party, he throws a party. In verse 5, we're told that there's another little party for all the people in Susa. Not just the VIPs, everybody, the, the least to the greatest. And that lasts a full week. Just imagine being a poor person in Susa two and a half thousand years ago and you get invited to the palace for a week. You walk through the gates, you see the sort of luxury that you've never known. They've got white linen curtains. You don't even have windows at home. And he's got white linen curtains, all the stuff. You see all the, all the description there? It talks about things being blue and purple. You don't own anything purple. Purple is very expensive to make. Uh, they've got everything purple. And, and, and the, uh, the silver curtain poles, the curtain poles are silver and the marble pillars and the patio made of mother of pearl. They've got gold and silver couches. How much gold does it take to make a sofa out of gold? It can't be very comfortable, but it wasn't there to be comfortable, was it? It was there to be impressive. The whole thing here is to say, Wow. Xerxes is incredible. He's so impressive. And then there's the drink. He's not sort of just got a, a few drinks on the side, a little stack of disposable cups. This is golden goblets, each one different from the last, flowing with abundant royal wine. Not a five-quid bottle of plonk from the offy. This is royal wine. And a totally open bar as well. Often at these kinds of things, you would only be allowed to drink when the king drank. So you'd all sort of be keeping an eye out and he has a sip. Okay, we can all have a sip. No, he says, this time there is no restriction, verse 8. Each guest is allowed to drink without restriction for six months. It would have been carnage. There's no wonder his wife has a separate party for the girls in a different part of the palace. Xerxes being set up here is as a real impressive king. His world is a man's world, a terrifyingly impressive world. And this whole thing is to say to everybody, come to the feast, drink my wine, see my glory, and fear my power. The world is a very scary place with people like that in the driving seats. It's much easier to go along with people like that, to just enjoy all the perks that come with people like that. Who would ever stand up to an impressive king like this? 
Well, enter Vashti, or don't enter Vashti, as the case may be. It's the home straight now. We've got to have this six-month kind of bender. And then we've got verse 10 comes along. The king is in high spirits from wine. I'm not surprised. He, he calls for his wife. And again, this isn't just a little sort of sends her a text or anything. This is a royal command in verse 11. To bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles. For she was lovely to look at. So the impressive king, he has a trophy wife. So let's polish her up and bring her out. That'll be another way we see how great Xerxes is. And there's a hint here that when it says for her to be wearing her royal crown, that it means only her royal crown. All the lads are here. Literally all the lads in the whole country are here. Come and parade yourself for us because you are nice to look at. You are not a, a person to talk to. You are a thing to watch. And no doubt everybody would have been very impressed. They say, wow, this is amazing. What a man he is. The power and the palace and, and all these amazing things. And his wife, what an impressive king. Xerxes would be a celebrity today, wouldn't he? Everybody trying to be like him. As one person put it, blokes like this have forever dominated and intimidated throne rooms, boardrooms, classrooms, bedrooms and sitting rooms, even without the great riches and resources that Xerxes had. People like this. We're being shown this impressive king to show us what we're up against, what we're up against in the world out there. That is what the world wants to be like. And if we're honest, a little bit about the worldliness in here. As you see the temptation towards those things or to go along with those things, to attach yourself to those things. Because it's just so impressive and powerful and amazing. But this story of Esther also shows us that he's not just impressive. He is the ridiculous king. He is the ridiculous king. Despite how scary he is, the next bit of the story is deliberately cutting him down to size. You know, he's the sort of person, he says jump, the empire says how high. He says, come on, let's celebrate. And so they have a party for six months. He says, bring in my wife. And his wife says, no. No. I imagine that's not a word he heard very often. No, I'm not coming. You know, verse 12, when the attendants delivered the king's command... Queen Vashti refused to come. Here he is, he's the ruler of 127 provinces. But his wife wears the trousers at home. This is supposed to be a little bit funny, isn't it? That he, he commands all these armies, he's there in front of everybody, but he's not allowed to interrupt her girls' night in. He's absolutely furious. What's he going to do? What's he going to do in this situation? Well, he does what every sensible person would do, and he calls a cabinet meeting. He gets all his civil servants together and says, well, technically, legally, what am I supposed to do now? <laughs> this is the king of the world. And then listen to the legal advice that he gets. It is ridiculous. Verse 16, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. Really? For the queen's conduct 
will become known to all the women and they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she would not come. Oh my goodness, what a terrible example this is. Our wives are going to give us no end of grief. They might go on some kind of sexual strike. I think that's what they're really worried about here. But this is one marriage is not quite right. And so all of our marriages are doomed. It is ridiculous, isn't it? It is such an overreaction. It's so pompous. It shows behind closed doors this impressive king is ridiculous. He makes these outrageous demands on his wife and then punishes her for not complying. And sadly, some people think that that's what the Bible teaches about marriage, to have overbearing men clamping down on disobedience. That is not it. When we are shown that kind of behavior, we're deliberately seeing it for what it is, which is ridiculous. Yes, husbands are called to lead their homes, but they do that by laying down their life, not by domineering. Yes, wives are called to submit to their husbands, but that is secondary to submitting to God. So in case you're in any doubt, um, ladies, if your husband ever asks you to flaunt your body in front of his drunk friends, that is not something God wants you to do. Xerxes is being an idiot here. He is being outrageously awful here. And we see that in his reaction to the whole thing, that the prouder we are, the more arrogant we are, the worse we are going to take it when we feel slighted. A small thing is going to get a massive reaction out of us. How dare you? Do you know who I am? So see what they end up doing because of her no-show. They pass a law which can never be changed. Remember that detail? That's going to be important in a couple of weeks' time in the story of Esther. They pass a law which can never be changed in the middle of verse 19 to get rid of Vashti forever. She is never again to enter the presence of the king. That is, again, funny, isn't it? To go, she doesn't want to come in? Fine. Well, she's not allowed to come in. I don't even want her to come in. She's never going to come in ever again. Well, that probably suits her just fine, actually. It's It's silly. They do this sort of divorce slash restraining order and keep her away from the king. And then they pass a law commanding all wives everywhere not to do what Vashti did. What if everybody finds out what happened? I know. Let's tell literally everyone in the kingdom what happened and then say, don't do that. We're being given a glimpse as so they scrabble around to try and resolve this situation. We're given a glimpse behind this impressive facade. It is ridiculous. The world's power is ridiculous. Sin is not clever. It is absurd. There's something very weird about it, very weird about a man who thinks he is God. Like when uh, Kim Jong-un commanded all the men in North Korea to get the same haircut as him. I don't know if it's sort of you get that done and you go, right, if I'm going through this, everybody's got to go through this. I don't know what it is, but it's that sort of man. Going, what on earth makes you think you've got that sort of power? And the writer of Esther is inviting us to laugh at these people. He's inviting us to laugh at that sort of self-centered, pompous power. Our powerful enemies are never as impressive as they think they are. And neither are we. We've got to watch out if we cannot 
laugh at ourselves or if, if things are pointed out about us and we respond with, do you know who I am? Just that is what sin is like, isn't it? Just desperate impressiveness and trying to keep the ridiculousness hidden. Now, in hindsight, the original readers would have known uh, that that was what Xerxes was like because what happened at home was about to happen on the world stage. This planned war that he had with Greece, they also refused to kowtow to him. He, he came home with his tail between his legs thoroughly disgraced. Now, looking back on it, we can see the funny side of it. I think we're supposed to. I think there's lots of things through the book of Esther where we're supposed to find it funny. But at the time, he was nothing to laugh at. And actually, at the time, things were about to get a lot worse. That's in our, our third scene as we come across the captive queen. The captive queen. Xerxes, he, he calms down eventually. This is probably once he's come back from Greece, feeling a bit sorry for himself. And he, he, he thinks it's probably time to get a new wife. And so his servants come up with this cunning plan. Basically, the plan is Miss World. Uh, they're going to have a beauty contest throughout the entire empire. But the, the unlucky winner doesn't just get to sort of open a shopping centre and wear a, a plastic tiara. She's actually going to be the queen. That's what this prize is at the end of the, the contest. Um, a few years ago, I don't know if you saw this, uh, there was a reality show uh, on called I Want to Marry Harry. Did anybody see this? Twelve women were tricked into thinking that they were competing for Prince Harry's hand in marriage. They really thought that this was who it was. Well, they knew it was somebody impressive. And then as the thing goes on, they're like, oh, it's actually Prince Harry. And they start being tricked into this thing. They think it's who it is. He was actually a lookalike. He's not actually very lookalike. He's just sort of English and ginger. I think that's as far as they went. But it's exploitative, isn't it? To sort of make people think this is what it is when it's not. Well, Xerxes takes the sort of exploitation to another level. He, this is not going to be meeting eyes meeting across a crowded room. He's not going to be getting down on one knee, anything. The plan is basically, let's get a load of attractive girls. Let's drag them here to Sousa, and you can pick your favorites. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Of course it did. He's an absolute scumbag. Now, so far in the story, it's all been about kings and queens and that kind of thing, hasn't it? Palaces and servants and, and things like that. But from verse 5, that all starts to change. This is the first point in the story. We get to meet some normal people or some of God's people. And we get to see how people like us get swept up into these global events. So let's have a look from verse 5 and 6. It says, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So finally, in these verses, we're seeing how the book of Esther connects to the rest of the Bible. Because otherwise, we'd be going, well, what's this got to do with anything? And how is there a Jew in a place like this? Well, it's because for centuries, God had been warning his people through the prophets that they needed to stop rejecting him, stop pushing him aside and worshipping other gods, stop going away from him. Because if they didn't, he would eventually evict them out of the promised land. He would send them away. 
And after centuries of warning and them not turning around, he did that. He, he exiled them. He sent them away. The Babylonian Empire came. They took lots of Jews captive, including people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and that sort of lot. And then they came back again a bit later and they took even more people. And that's the time which Mordecai's family were taken. And then they came back again and they burnt down the temple in Jerusalem. They destroyed it and carried everybody else off into exile. So they were in exile away from the promised land for 70 years until they finally turned back to God. And so God sent them home. The Babylonian Empire, this unbeatable empire, fell. The Persian Empire took over. Their new emperor, Cyrus, let all the Jews go free. It would have been a wonderful thing, an amazing thing. We can finally go home. We can rebuild our lives. We can put God's promises into action again. We, we're so desperate to have him back at the center of our lives. Let's go home and start again. So it's a bit weird that 50 years later or so, there's still a Jew in Susa. Why hasn't he gone home? They're all free to go. They're all free to go back to the land God's promised to them, to the temple he promised to dwell in. And yet here he is, 765 miles away from where he's supposed to be. Now before he's even said anything or done anything, Mordecai and the people with him are a little bit suspect. These are people for whom God's promises don't seem to be reflected in their priorities. But he's our way into the story. So, so let's find out a little bit more about him. Let's find out a bit more about the, the star of the story as well. So let's read on from verse 7. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because uh, she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So here she is. We finally get to meet uh, Esther. Or the, well, she's, she's got two names, doesn't she? Her proper Jewish name is Hadassah, which is a flower like myrtle. This would be a very different book, isn't it? The book of myrtle. Um, but that's, that's what it means, Hadassah. But her Persian name was Esther which in Persian means star. In Hebrew, it sounds a lot more like the word hidden. And these two names, they give us a picture of, of the situation she's in. She's, she's trying to live in two worlds. Can she be a star in Persia? Or is she going to have to stay hidden? And the tension of the book, really, is that eventually she's going to have to choose. And that's the tension in all our lives, really. What are we going to be? Who are we going to follow? What is going to be the hidden part of our life? What's going to be out in the open? We have to choose. And Esther is eventually going to have to choose. But right now, she is hidden. We're told here that Esther was beautiful, which is very bad news when the king is on the prowl, isn't he? And so, unsurprisingly, we get to verse 8, and we're told this. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. Now, sometimes I think 
if we do read the book of Esther, we can read it as if it's like Cinderella. Where you sort of have a poor little girl who will go to the ball, where the handsome prince plucks her out of obscurity to be his blushing bride. This is sex trafficking, isn't it? This is not that. This is awful. This is the Jews being carried into exile and now the women being taken, being bundled in the back of a van and taken to the palace. This is, we ought to feel incredibly sorry for poor captive Esther and just be thinking, what on earth is going to happen to her? One of God's people just caught up in this horrible situation. And yet amazingly in verse 9, it seems to be going well. It says, she pleased him. That's the, the eunuch in charge of it. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Now, I would have thought the best place in the harem was the exit, to not be part of it at all. But considering that is not an option, things are going about as well as they could possibly be. And yet again, we're being given a sense that Esther and Mordecai are a little bit compromised. We see this in verse 10. It says, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked to and fro near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. So we see here Esther living up to her name of being hidden. You contrast that with Daniel. Daniel gets taken off into exile. He gets brought into the palace and he won't use his Babylonian name. He's, no, I'm Daniel, thank you very much. He wouldn't eat the king's food. He refused to blend in and he got thrown to the lions for it. Whereas Esther makes a deliberate point of not being distinctive, which wasn't as simple as just neglecting to mention it on the, the forms. This is, you know, Old Testament law was deliberately intrusive. It made you different in every way, what you ate and wore and who you'd be willing to marry and what you would do on certain days and not do on other days. If you were going to be hidden, I mean, you had to break those laws. So again, Esther is not in there sort of running the CU in the harem. She's joining in with everybody else. And it's good to have that in the back of our minds, but I think the majority of this, we ought to be saying, let's not be too harsh on this. If we were in her shoes, would we really have acted any differently? How could she have done anything else when she'd been kidnapped like this? Would we have got the balance right? How to be in the palace, but not of the palace? Or maybe we would have done. Unlike Esther, we're not being held captive we are much freer than her to do the right thing. Do we do the right thing? Sometimes it is more like driving in a foreign country where you just have this sense of everything's happening to me. I don't know what is going on. I'm just trying, I'm trying to do the right thing, but I'm also trying to survive. Sometimes right and wrong aren't clear. Sometimes they are clear, but we still get it wrong. Does that mean God can't use us anymore? Esther's an impossible situation. Just, just listen to the rules of this uh, queen contest. It's sort of like being held prisoner in a spa. It's sort of a very weird combination of luxury and captivity. Verse 12. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, 
she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem, to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. So on the one hand, she has a year of beauty treatments, and that might sound nice, but really this is a year of being literally groomed for one seedy night with the king. This is hundreds of innocent girls being taken to a man they'd never met and would likely never meet again, only to then be added to his catalogue of prostitutes. Once you've gone in there, when you come back, you go to the sort of second-hand section. You are no, you're not one of the top ones anymore. This is an awful, awful thing. And yet Xerxes, I think, is, is a tragically modern character. I think more people aren't actually like this because it's not for lack of impulse. It's lack of resources, they don't have the money or the power to work at this same kind of scale as Xerxes does, and so they just sort of do it in miniature or do it online, using people and then moving on. Precious people. Just hear how she's described in verse 15. This is somebody's daughter. This is an orphan. It says, When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail. When her turn came to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, in the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Must have been a terrifying ordeal as that, that date gets closer, the appointment gets closer. Is this the sort of thing you want to go well or, or you don't want to go well, you don't want it to happen? It's not up to her at all. But then in verse 17, we see what happens. It says, Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday through the provinces, and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Again, hooray for Xerxes. What an amazing person. Let's all celebrate this king and his captive queen. It is an awful situation. What is wrong with the world? This is not a fairy tale romance. This is, Esther is not Kate Milton. This is a young girl, daughter of immigrant slaves, orphaned, kidnapped, forced to marry the man who planned it. What a jumble of blessing and nightmare it would have been. And isn't that what life is so often like? A sort of, there are things about this where, I, I mean, it's a lot better than what happened to the other girls, but then at the same time, it's an, uh, what a horrible situation. Life is so often like that. She is a queen, wow, but she's a captive at the same time. What is going on here? If anybody is in charge, where is he? And that is our, our final point today, the invisible king. 
the invisible king? Where is God in all of this? That is the big question. Esther is the only book of the Bible where God is not mentioned. God is not mentioned in the whole book of Esther, even in passing. God doesn't speak in the book. He doesn't do any overt miracles. He is nowhere to be seen. I wonder what you make of that. The story of Esther is all about that, about what it's like when God seems to not be there, when terrible things happen, when evil people intimidate and impress, when ordinary people are trapped. Normal life, in other words. Isn't that normal life for you? You're heading out in the morning, the traffic does not part like the Red Sea for you, does it? Things go wrong and there's no angel appearing with a reassuring word just for you. No miracles most days. If they were still writing the book of Acts, none of the stuff we get up to would make it the cut, would it? Most of the time, life is a muddle, if not worse. And we're left wondering, where is God in all of this? Karen Jobes puts it like this. She says, it may seem to be inappropriate to speak of the theology of a book which does not mention God even once. Christian theology, however, is concerned with the character of the unseen God who manifests himself in the events of human history. Once the theological message of the book is understood, it is appropriate that God is not mentioned. In fact, the complete absence of God from the text is the genius of the book from which its hope and encouragement flow to us today. I love that. I, I think it's absolutely true. God is the king, but he is an invisible king so often. He rules the world. He keeps his promises, normally not through miraculous intervention, but through ordinary coincidences. There's so many ifs in this story. What if Vashti had come when, when, when she was called? What if Xerxes hadn't flown off the handle and set up this horrible contest? What if Mordecai had gone to Jerusalem years ago? What if Esther just wasn't his type? What if this? What if, what if, what if, what if? If any of those things were different, then Esther would not have ended up queen. And as we're going to find out in the next couple of weeks, the fact that she was somehow there in that position was the means by which all God's people were saved. So many coincidences. We're told she somehow found favor with the officials. Isn't that funny? That's exactly what happened to Daniel in Babylon. That's exactly what happened to Joseph in Egypt. Both times God looked like he'd abandoned his people. Both times it turned out for good. So I suppose the question to us is, do we think God can actually do that? Do you believe in your life God can actually do that? Use the worst things to bring about the best things. Just look at the cross. That is the worst thing that's ever happened. And yet, the death of Jesus is how God saves us. And so we look at that and we rejoice, don't we? And so I suppose for us, could it not be that through all of life's tragedies, small ones, big ones, God is working out his purposes as the invisible king? Years ago, I remember some 
family friends of ours at their young son's funeral were absolutely adamant that they read out Romans 8 verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Mike Cain says uh, the book of Esther is for people who hear Romans 8.28 and say, yeah, right. Yeah, right. All things. For people who, who hear God moves in a mysterious way and then roll their eyes. Those words have been used, haven't they, as a bit of a cliche. Ah, God moves in a mysterious way as a way of sort of dismissing all the questions. As the, the cartoon goes, I know he works in mysterious ways, but if I worked that mysteriously, I'd get fired. It can be a sort of way of going, oh, well, yeah, it's a bit of a cop-out, isn't it? But it is true. We're told, aren't we, in that song we sung, judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Don't just look at what your eyes can see and, and you can sense. Don't trust the Lord by feeble sense. Trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Esther is full of these frowning providences, these things. Where if we didn't know better, we'd think God was really cross. But God is smiling. And he invites us to smile with him. He's the invisible king. The visible king Xerxes, don't forget how ridiculous he is. Don't be tempted to join that sort of power. He claims to be king of the world. We know that position's taken, don't we? We know that the Lord Jesus is the king of kings, lord of lords, reigning over all. We know the Lord Jesus is the one who uses his power for good. That he invites us to a feast that's going to make 180 days seem like a bit of a washout. A wedding banquet. Where we're the bride. And, and we didn't have to win some kind of contest to become that. And he isn't some sort of husband where we think, oh, for goodness sake, I've got to go home with that. He is glorious. He loves us. We get to be his bride because he dies for us. He takes us out of nowhere. He sets a crown on our heads. He showers us with generosity. That is the real king of the world. So we don't want to be tempted to, to join the world in its power. And we don't need to fear the world in its power either. Because we have a king who is not absent. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that you are still king even when we can't see it. We want to thank you for this painfully honest story of Esther that shows up the world for what it is, as awful as it is, as stupid as it is. And we pray that you'd be using this story over the next few weeks to help us to see you more and to trust you more. For those of us who are currently going through real hardship, for those who are recovering from it, for those of us who don't even know, but, but for whom hardship is coming, please would you strengthen us to see more and more of your hidden hand at work. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.